0: My hope is in the Lord, Lord, who gave himself for me. me, Good morning, this is Pastor Lane Jones from Calkins Baptist Church. Glad to have you with us for the Beacon of Hope broadcast. And those of you that may be following this program over the last several weeks have noted that I did a series up through Resurrection Sunday on four major characters that were involved from Christ's passion through his resurrection appearances. And those four characters that we talked about on the radio were Judas Iscariot, Simon Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, Pontius Pilate was number three and all that he had gone through, and then last Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we talked about the Apostle John. Well, in my church, I actually did a fifth person. and. I personally was so blessed by that study on Mary Magdalene that I thought it would be good to share that study with you, even though it's the week after Resurrection Sunday. And so, if you want to follow in the scripture, we'll start Mary Magdalene's story at Luke chapter 8 and verses 1 to 3. It says, Now it came to pass afterward, he, speaking of Jesus, went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. And so it's interesting, with just those few words, we get a little insight into Mary Magdalene and her story. And one of the things that Mary would tell us is that she was a very troubled woman before Christ saved her. And she was delivered, actually, from demonic possession. So Jesus was traveling through both the cities and the villages around the nation of Israel, preaching about the kingdom of God, and and I'm sure much of that was well-received. And his 12 apostles are now traveling with him. And then Luke mentions how several women were delivered by Christ of different things. Some of them have been delivered from physical issues, and they're called hear infirmities in my translation. I'm using the New King James. The word infirmities actually carries the idea of illnesses or disabilities or weaknesses. And so these very possibly could have been physical issues. And so some of these women that are now traveling with Jesus have been delivered from physical problems. i specifically named here a lady by the name of Joanna She's the wife of one of Herod's stewards, so she's pretty high up in the government, not that she is, but her husband is, one of King Herod's leading officials. And then another lady by the name of Susanna and and then it says many others who provided for him from their substance so again what we're learning is that some of these ladies had been healed from physical issues and then also there were many who were delivered from spiritual issues and specifically Mary Magdalene's under that category and it says of Mary out of whom had come seven demons so can you imagine the devastation that would be in a person's life as a result of demonic possession. And so Christ delivered her from these seven demons, and she was a changed woman. And that's really what you'll find uh, next that Mary could say about herself, and, and we learn about her through these other writers, and that is that Mary becomes then a loyal follower of Jesus after her salvation. Obviously, Mary was overjoyed to be delivered by Jesus from these demons, and she never got over that reality. That's, I think, one of the main things that I have pulled from her life. Thus, she continued to follow Jesus. She's one of those ladies that will follow the Lord, even though they're not part of the 12 disciples. Jesus has around him just those 12 men as the closest ones to him. But these women travel along with the group, and they're just trying to be a blessing to Christ and his ministry. And what could they do? Well, there's several things, actually. One of them is specifically mentioned. It says that these many others, many of these women who provided for him from their substance. So you have, for instance, the woman that her husband's a steward for King Herod. Well, she probably had some means, some funds as a result of that. And I'm sure that if she did have some extra money, and, and she would then try to give that toward Christ's ministry. And there's other ladies, evidently, that were doing the same. So they certainly were able to help Christ financially. I think another way that they were able to help the Lord in his ministry is just in the logistics. Uh, For instance, think of food preparation as just one of the things. And so these women may very well have helped with just trying to make sure the meals are on a regular basis, that they're using uh, the resources so Christ and his disciples could do ministry and come back and get some physical nourishment. I think another thing that these ladies could have been involved in is some spiritual counseling what about the women that would come and want help from Jesus and so these ladies may very well have been used by Christ to help counsel and understand the ladies who are coming to Jesus and some of the issues that they have that maybe the men wouldn't have gotten so well and so they certainly could have a ministry in that regard uh, now so, so you have a financial? aspect they could help Christ's ministry. I think logistics, it makes sense there. And also spiritually, I believe that they would be a help to many others around them. Can you imagine talking to a person like a Mary Magdalene who had been delivered? And maybe you're not sure if you believe or don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah and and be able to say, look, I'm curious, I want to know. And Jesus or one of the disciples say, why don't you go talk to Mary? And wouldn't that be an honor? Wouldn't that be a blessing to be able to talk to this lady who could say, "Oh, I was I was totally my life was a wreck until Jesus came and delivered me and, you know, he can he can do the same for you." So, you can imagine how these ladies could have been a great help to our Lord in his ministry. But Mary not only is then a, a troubled woman who gets saved and Christ delivers her from demonic possession, she not only becomes a loyal follower of Christ, but that loyalty would even lead her to following Jesus to the cross. Now, Mary is described by the gospel writers at being at two different locations during Jesus' crucifixion. And let me just show you what I'm talking about. The first one is in John chapter 19, and I'm going to read verse 25 and 26, and it says this, Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, married the wife of cleopas and mary Magdalene. when jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by he said to his mother woman behold your son i'm going to read 27 as well then he said to the disciple behold your mother and from that hour that disciple took her into his own home that would be the apostle john who jesus was speaking with and saying look john i want you to take care of my mom that would be mary jesus mother And to his mom, Mary, Jesus says, I want you to be like a mother to John. And so John obeys Jesus, and Mary goes along with that. And I'm sure that was a mutually beneficial relationship between Mary and John. But you'll notice then, it was near the cross of Christ, as John described it. There stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister. He mentions Mary Magdalene. Now, what I also find interesting is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, And Jesus is just breathing his last. In verse 37, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So this is when Jesus dies. He dismisses his spirit. I'm at verse 40 now. There were also women looking on from afar among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less, and Joseph and Salome, who had also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So what I find interesting is, as Mark describes Jesus' death, he says that Mary Magdalene was looking on from afar. So that led me to three questions as I'm trying to study out of Mary Magdalene and her role in, in the Passion of Christ. And so here are my three questions. I, I really think I've gotten solid answers to two of them. You can see what you think. The third one, not so certain, but here are my three questions. Number one, are the Gospel writers just describing the same location for Mary Magdalene, maybe in different terms? So the idea is what seems near to you may seem far from my perspective. And let me give you an example. Let's say that you and I were going out Target practicing uh, for A rifle all right so we've got a target out there and we'll put Let's say it's a hundred yards away and you're a good shot and I'm probably not and so we're going out together well you give me a say three bullets and so I'm gonna try to hit the target in the bullseye and when I shoot there I'm within maybe three inches of the bullseye now as I look at that from a person that's not shot a lot I'd say wow I think I did I'm pretty close but when you look at that as a person that shoots quite often and you're consistently in the bullseye, you're thinking, wow, that guy's far off. So that was my question. Are, are we looking at just different gospel writers looking at it from a little different perspective? Or is has Mary actually moved? That was my first question. My second question that I wanted to know is if Mary is at two different spots, if the gospel writers really are describing her at two different places during the crucifixion at which location was Mary at first and my third question would be why did Mary move if she did so let's go and let's try to go down through those questions one by one answer to question number one it does seem that Mary was at two different spots now let's remember the crucifixion takes about six hours or so so of course it makes sense that during those hours she might have moved around some and not merely stayed in the same place But it does seem like she's in two different spots. Uh, And one of the ways we would reason that is that it seems that there are different people that she's standing next to at these different times. For instance, she's by Mary, Jesus' mother, who's not mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, She's also by some others that are not mentioned at the cross. So that would make some sense that she is at two different locations. Now, then question number two which one would she have been at first? And that's where the Harmony of the Gospels really helps, where scholars that know a lot more than I do can put the order of Jesus' life as best as they can with with a lot of research into the proper chronological sequence. And so in that, you may recall that there are seven sayings that Jesus made while he was on the cross. And let me take you to them in order. The first one, when he's actually, I believe, just being raised on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. Then, while he's still hanging there, if you remember, there's a bunch of people, religious leaders, in fact, who are just tormenting him verbally While he's being tormented physically, mocking him, saying, if you're the king of Israel, come down from the cross and all kinds of foolishness and let God save him now. You know, he saved others. He can't save himself. And if God would have him, you know, let him save him now. Just just wicked, wicked things that they were saying. And if you recall, there are two criminals on either side of him. And those men are actually having two different reactions to this whole thing. The one guy is kind of agreeing with Jesus' enemies and saying, yeah, you know, save yourself and us. And he's also blaspheming the Lord. But the guy on the other side of Jesus rebukes the first criminal, and he says, you know, don't you fear God? I mean, we're going to die here. And then he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Many of you remember that that statement by the the what we call the repentant thief and you remember Jesus answer it's in Luke chapter 23 verse 43 assuredly I say to you today you will be with me in paradise that's statement number 2 from the cross Luke chapter 23 and verse 43 where Jesus tells the repentant thief you're going to be in paradise with me isn't that a wonderful thing statement number 3 that Jesus makes from the cross is the one that we read about in John chapter 19 and verse 26 and 27, where he says to Mary, woman, behold your son. I want you to let John be like a son to you now. And then he says to John, behold your mother. Now that's statement number three. And let's remember, this is when John specifically tells us that near his cross was Mary, his mother, John there is a couple other ladies and Mary Magdalene so we know that Mary was near the cross pretty early while Jesus is hanging there the next statement Jesus makes is toward the very end of his crucifixion where he cries out my god my god why have you forsaken me crying out to the to god the father himself this found in Matthew chapter 27 verse 46 it's when everything had gone black i believe it's when the son of god in a very real way, you're just going through uh, just literal. I am not using the word hell in any kind of a of a blasphemous sense. This is when he is taking my eternal punishment, my eternal hell, upon himself, and when he's doing the same for you. And God the Father, the Bible says in two Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one, He has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Now think about that. Jesus becomes sin for me who knew no sin that that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And the idea is that Jesus took upon himself the iniquity of us all, as Isaiah chapter 53 tells us as well. Saying number five is shortly thereafter. It's when Jesus says, I thirst. It's in, found actually in the next spot in John chapter 19 and verse 28. After these things, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, said that the scripture might be fulfilled, I thirst. So, crying out, I thirst. That was statement number five. Statement number six from the cross is also found in the Gospel of John. It's in chapter 19 and verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And so when he cries out, it is finished. It's rather interesting, that statement. It's it's a cry of, of victory. It's what the Romans would say when they won a battle. It's also what was written, these words, it is finished, would be written on a bill when it was paid. And I want you to think about that, saying, in essence, paid in full. That's what is being stated there, paid in full, or I have the victory. That's why the centurion, who's a Roman, looks at. Christ at the end of all this, and he says, Surely this was the Son of God. I mean, he understands as a Roman what that cry would be. It's not a cry of defeat, it's not a last gasp. It's a cry of victory, and he says he said it with a loud voice. Now, when the st- statement number seven is recorded in the Gospel of Luke again, it's in chapter 23 and verse 46, where Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that's when he drops his head and dies. So you'll notice that Jesus committed his spirit to the Lord. That's statement number seven. And after Jesus' death is when we see Mary Magdalene with these other women watching from afar. So it does seem that Mary moved. And question number two, it seems that Mary was closer to the cross of Christ at the beginning of the crucifixion than she was when he died. So Mary is with Jesus' mother, his aunt, a couple other of the closest people to Christ on earth at the cross. And then she is back up with a bunch of other women at a distance when Jesus dies. So let me ask you this question. Why would Mary be at the cross in the first place? I mean, especially those of us who maybe think more on just of a logical and maybe less emotional aspect. If you were Mary you're taking a tremendous risk to identify with Jesus of Nazareth. He's now being crucified and being treated very spitefully. And if you recall, when Jesus was first arrested, he was taken to what we call a trial, maybe more of an interview between himself and the former high priest, a man whose name was Annas. And specifically, Annas asked Jesus about his followers because they were very much interested in stomping out this belief in Jesus as the Messiah as quickly as they could. And so Mary, being right there at the cross, is certainly identifying herself as a follower of Jesus. Now, the, the Romans, as well as the Jewish leadership, would tend not to t- make as big of an issue out of the women that were following him, not thinking that they would lead any kind of a, of a rebellion. They'd be more interested in the men who might be more military leaders, But still, Mary is risking being there at the cross. She's risking her own personal safety and certainly her reputation among the religious leaders of the day. Now, also, think about this fact. She cannot stop the crucifixion, but she's there. She's going to be there. Now, how did she find out about Jesus being crucified? Well, we don't know that detail, but it seems very likely that after Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, just as Jesus predicted, the disciples scattered. And so, as they scatter, they must have told some of the other followers of Jesus, among whom would have been Jesus' mother Mary, who was in Jerusalem, as well as Mary Magdalene and others. And so, these ladies eventually hear about the fact of Jesus' crucifixion, and so they make it to the cross. But but they can't do anything to stop the crucifixion. Mary also cannot do anything to physically help Christ. She cannot give him food or water. She can only watch him die. So again, why is she there? Well, she can give emotional support to Christ just by her presence. Have you ever been suffering greatly and had a close friend or loved one just sit there with you? And if they're wise, many times they don't say a whole lot. Because quite honestly, when a person is going through a tragedy, there's not a lot that we can say to bring comfort. Really, it's a privilege when people allow you in their presence during a time of great tragedy. And we've had several of those cases. I remember one number of years ago before I moved to this area. A young woman, oh, I'd say she was in her early 20s, and was driving on a 191 just above Hamlin. And we don't really know what happened. It very possibly was that, that she or the other driver had fallen asleep. Could be that the the sun because it was in the afternoon the sun had gotten into her eyes, but for whatever reason she had a head-on collision with another man and she did not survive it. Now we had you know believers in the family, but I'll just tell you this when I got the phone call and of course you know they would like someone to come a pastor to come and and so I came over. but I'll just say that one of the things I felt like the Lord has Taught me over the years is that when you're dealing with someone in in a tragedy, you say very little. You just don't come in there to start giving a bunch of answers to people that, quite frankly, you don't understand what they're going through at that point. So I really try uh, to go prayerfully and to just be quiet for the most part. And then if God gives you something to say, then you say that. Now, obviously, if you have somebody that you you know lived a godly life, I don't think there's anything wrong. And Assuming that that person is with the Lord. When my father passed away in October, uh, I am confident where he is at. And so I could look into my mother's face and and tell her that I don't grieve for him. I grieve for her. And that's true. But uh, Mary can be there for emotional support. I don't know that Mary said anything. But I think that's really why she was there. Because Jesus had done so much for her in delivering her. She wanted to be there for him. Now, another thing that Mary may have been doing at the cross, Mary Magdalene I'm speaking of, is she may have been able to give some kind of support to Mary, Jesus' mother, and to the other close followers of Christ. And so I think primarily she is there to be a comfort to Jesus, but she may also be there to bring comfort to Jesus' mother, as I just cannot imagine not only seeing one of my children die, but to see them being tortured to see them being mocked would have been an awful thing but what we see then is is Mary near the cross while Jesus is speaking to the apostle Paul apostle John excuse me and Jesus, his own mother Mary now the question is then we we also see Mary farther from the cross so why does Mary move around and I don't have a perfect answer for that one. It's at least possible that Mary could just not endure watching Christ die. So it's possible that she just felt like, I just cannot be here. Very, very likely the people who were crucified were crucified naked. It would be a a disgusting thing. Jesus had been beaten viciously. Uh, there's probably a lot of swelling. He's got—he's a bloody mess from the Roman scourging, from the crown of thorns, from the nails being driven through his hands and his feet. We just can't imagine the agony. And so, uh, you can you fault the other women? The, and the Bible says many of them are afar off when Jesus is being crucified. They just don't want to see this. I—I I don't know about you, but how? Many of us would have a real struggle just watching this thing go on, and we should. So maybe it got to the place where Mary just had to leave. It also would make sense to me that she may have seen these other women. Maybe they had come up later and would have had obvious questions as to what was going on and what had happened. And so it's very possible that, that maybe Mary and some of the others that were right near the cross there left to... Uh, for even sent Mary to go off and to tell the others what was going on but now who is she with well she's with what the Bible calls many women it appears that many of them were unnamed and these are but these are people just like Mary who had followed Jesus from Galilee and were just ministering us, to you're him you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast a ministry of Coffin Baptist so Church here Mary now is, back to the uh, message trying again to just be a blessing to other people to try to she's She's at the cross, she's trying to be a blessing to those who are there, trying to comfort those in and, and trying to comfort the Lord. But it's also interesting that when they talk about Mary with these other women, they do not mention, the Gospel writers do not mention Mary being with Jesus' mother any longer, or the Apostle John, and it just seems likely to me that Jesus' mother Mary does not leave Christ's cross until he dies. I think that's highly likely. I think John doesn't leave either because John, I'm confident John doesn't leave. And you remember that John's going to take Jesus' mother Mary into his own home, and the Bible says from that time, from that hour. So I'm confident that Mary and John stay right there at the cross because I want you to notice what John says next. Now, he's writing about his own experience here. He says, therefore, I'm in verse 31 of John chapter 19. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, what John is talking about is in crucifixion, you typically died of exhaustion and suffocation. So so what happens is the person is in agony already because their feet and their hands have been nailed now they're not hanging merely on that they probably put ropes around the arms and uh, there's a push-up board at the bottom kind of like a slanted thing that they're nailed to and so in order to breathe because the way you're hanging you actually have to push up with your feet to give your lungs a chance to expand and so there were times when people in, in the ancient world who were crucified might survive on the cross for days, and they would eventually die from the exhaustion, maybe even uh, loss of, of, of uh, blood and, and loss of, uh, of water, to the place where they can now no longer push up, their lungs can't expand, and then they would suffocate. So the purpose of breaking these men's legs would be that they would no longer be able to push up and they would die of suffocation rather quickly. Now, again, it's a horrific thing, but that's why they would break these men's legs. But John goes on. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, which means he's going to die of suffocation. The other who was crucified with him, would, well, other was crucified with Jesus, so they'd be the two criminals on either side. And let me just say this, in some ways, as horrific as this crucifixion was, This at least ended their suffering a little quicker, especially for the one that knew the Lord. Now, the one that didn't, um, this suffering was just beginning. But verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, remember he had given up the ghost, he had dismissed his spirit, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. So as John is watching this, he's describing that they don't break Jesus' legs. And then he says, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. So what John is saying is, I was there. I'm testifying of this because I know it's true, and I want you to know it's true so you can believe. So the Apostle John is still near the cross. He's watching what's going on, and he says, I was there. I saw Jesus give up the spirit. I saw that. I saw Jesus' side be pierced. I saw that they did not break his bones, that they did not break his legs. And so Mary does not, she's not close. I'm sure she's within enough sight distance that she could tell that Jesus was, was dying with the other ladies who she's now with. But Mary's not done. She has followed Jesus seemingly since her conversion. She followed him from Galilee. She came down to Jerusalem she follows Jesus to the cross but now we're getting later on in the day and they, there's a commandment in the old testament about the fact that one one is hung on a tree and you could do it either a couple of different ways you could do it with hanging um uh, by you know strangulation as we are more familiar with or hanging as now this crucifixion but there was a curse upon anyone who was hung on a tree and it also said that you were to bury that person before before the the next day, that they were not to hang all night on a, on a on a tree. And so, the Jewish leaders, wanting to keep the law, as wicked as they were, they want those bodies down. It's Passover season; it's a holy day. They don't want this to to go on. And so, Jesus really needs to be buried. Now, we know from other gospel accounts that there's a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea who does the, the the burial. But I want you to notice that Mary, Mary Magdalene, after all she's been through, okay, she's been with Christ probably most, if not all, of those six hours he's been on the cross. And you just can't imagine the stress of all of that. But after his death, she, does, she follows Jesus to the tomb. We want to read from Mark chapter 15 now, I'm reading from verse 42 to 47. Now, when evening had come, so they've got to get him down before sundown, okay? Because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, why do we say, does, does Mark say it took courage to do this? And the reason is because... Jesus is an outlaw to the Sanhedrin. They've condemned him of blasphemy. Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin, and to identify with the blasphemer, and to bury him in your own tomb was a tremendous risk for this man. Now, tragically, he hadn't really come out and identified with Jesus up to this point, but now he is, and he's actually willing to bury Jesus in his own tomb. So you'll notice what happens next. Mar- Pilate, Pilate marveled that he was already dead, but you think about all that Jesus had been through, being beaten viciously with a cat of nine tails by the Romans. Of course, he had been beaten before he got to Pilate in the first place. Then um, he was, went through all of the, the tortures of crucifixion. And our Lord, though I'm sure very strong, has now died on the cross. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when the, he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Of course, the centurion can say, look, I, I uh, punctured his his uh, side and blood and water came out. Yeah, he's clearly dead. And so Pilate says, okay, Joseph, you can take the body. Then he brought bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in linen. Now, the Gospel of John tells us that another of the Sanhedrin members, Nicodemus, also helped Joseph at this time in the wrapping of of Jesus. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled the stone against the door of the tomb, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. So what do we see? This woman that had been such a mess and was possessed by seven demons, had been delivered by Jesus, just couldn't get over the love of Christ for her, the forgiveness that he had given her, the cleansing from her sin. She follows the Lord, does whatever she can. When she hears Jesus is being crucified, she's already followed him to Jerusalem. She goes and she's at the cross with Jesus' mother, with the Apostle John and others. She even is, is a distance away uh, talking with some of the other ladies and, and weeping with them as Jesus uh, is dies. And now... She doesn't just give up after all that stress and all the pain that she's been through. She follows the body of Jesus as it's being carried to the resting place of Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. So Mary and the other ladies uh, are, uh, just one other lady is mentioned here, not only see where Jesus was buried, but they also watched the large stone rolled over the grave opening. And that would be a concern. Because Mary and these other ladies have another idea, and that is they want to do their own part in anointing the body of Jesus. And so Mary can say something else, and that is that she was among the first of the ladies to visit the empty tomb. Now, I'm back in the Gospel of Mark again. I'm at chapter 16 and verses 1 to 4. Now, let me tell you how I think this comes down. I don't believe Jesus was crucified on Friday, as I've told you before. I think he was crucified on Thursday. It makes sense the three days and three nights add up better. Plus, when it says the Sabbath was a high day, there was a special Sabbath that they would have during Passover. They had more than one, and I think it came before the Saturday Sabbath. It was a Friday. So the idea was that Jesus had to be buried Thursday before the end of the day. All right, so that is where uh, the first day comes in. Then overnight, okay, Thursday night, They can't go to the tomb on Friday because that's a special Sabbath for Passover week. They can't come on Saturday because that's the normal Sabbath. So the first day they can come back is the third day after Jesus' crucifixion. It would be Sunday morning. Now I'm going to ask you to think with me for just a second. Wouldn't it be rather disgusting to try to anoint Jesus' body three days after his crucifixion? Just honestly, it would be well deteriorated within three days. And the stench would have to be horrible. And yet here you find Mary Magdalene and some other ladies that are willing to go and anoint Jesus' body three days after his death. This just shows the level of love that Mary had for Christ. And these other ladies as well. So I'm going to start reading in Mark chapter 16 and verse 1. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. And you have to say, what good is that going to do? You can anoint him three days after his death, but his body's going to continue to decay. It's going to rot eventually. What good will it do? And yet you can see again. These ladies love the Lord. They just want to be a blessing, even to his remains. But let me say something else, that to do this, when you touch a dead body under the Jewish system, you are unclean. You're not able to be around and touch other people. You're not able to get a hug. You're not able to to be out in public where you could rub shoulders with other people for a week. So these ladies are assigning off a week of their lives to go and do this. Notice I'm keeping reading them at verse 2 now of Mark 16. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Now remember, Mary was there three days earlier. She saw what that was like, that huge stone that was rolled in front of the doorway now she in all probability did not know anything about the roman soldiers who were assigned to there that came after after the uh the initial burial but when they looked up they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it was very large so here mary is she and some other ladies have come early on sunday morning to the tomb they probably started out actually before sunrise and by the time they get to the tomb, it's about sunrise. And that has to be that way, by the way, because you can only walk such a certain distance on the Sabbath, which they were obviously would have been under that. But then secondly, you can't do any work until after the Sabbath. So they had to wait to sunrise on the third day before they could actually anoint Jesus' body. Now, they're concerned over how they would move the stone, because at least two of them saw the stone being placed over the door. And then they come and they see that the stone has been removed. Now, the assumption is not that Jesus rose from the dead. That is not what they were thinking. And we learn this from John chapter 20. So I'm going to go back to the Gospel of John's account and just read you to start with the first two verses. Now the first day of the week, again that's Sunday. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, so you can tell they're starting out before the sun rises. But they can't actually do the anointing until after. That's why the other gospel writers tell us that she gets to the tomb about sunrise. All right, so they're starting out before dark. They're going to get there about sunrise, and saw that the tomb, the, excuse me, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So now you can think about it, the light's just beginning to shine a little bit, The the sun is is coming up, and what are they seeing when they get to the tomb? They're seeing the stone is rolled away. And you just can't imagine what those ladies felt at that point, because they're not assuming resurrection, folks. What they're assuming is that the body has been stolen, and someone now, one of Jesus' enemies, who were so hateful when he was even dying, just ridiculing him, blaspheming him as he's being tortured to death now they're thinking someone is desecrating his body now, also keep in mind I was just listening to a scholarly uh, work on the uh, how the reasonableness of the Christian faith quite a quite an interesting book by uh, a guy by the name of C- uh, Craig and Toward the end of it, he's dealing with the resurrection. And one of the things he pointed out that I thought was very interesting is that the Jewish people believed in resurrection, The or the, uh, you'd call like the fundamentalist Jews. They believed in resurrection, but always at the end of the world, at the end of time. They what they didn't believe in it was resurrection during our time. And so, for instance, when Jesus is talking to um, Mary, Martha of Bethany, after her brother Lazarus had died, before he raised Lazarus from the dead, he said um, uh, that he, was, he could, Lazarus is going to rise again. And, and Martha says, I know that he will rise again at the last day. See, that's exactly their mindset. That is, there is going to be a resurrection. It's going to be at the end of the world. So what when Jesus is talking about being raised three days after his death, I think there would be many of them who would assume that the three days was something uh, symbolic, because Jesus did use quite a bit of symbolism. So maybe there's some kind of symbolic nature to this, but they're not expecting a resurrection three literal days after he was in the grave. And so you'll notice when they come and it's still dark and they, they now they're coming upon the, the tomb, and they see that the stone is rolled away, Verse 2 says, Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So what we know from the other gospel accounts is that there were several ladies in this group, and you can't blame them. They're going before dark. They're going into a cemetery or a place of burial. It's just not a, a place that you want to be by yourself. And so they're coming. This group of of ladies, they're coming to anoint the body of Jesus, which be a, a honestly just a disgusting thing as, as as standing on its own. But here they come, and when they see that stone rolled away, the women are in shock, and the first thought is. Someone's stolen the body. Now, the other ladies continue on to the tomb, but evidently Mary Magdalene says, I'll go back and I'll tell the disciples what's going on, probably thinking that maybe some of these men could do something to defend the body of Christ from whoever may have stolen it. Maybe they can can intercept them before something terrible happens. And so the other ladies continue on to the tomb. They see the angel that tells them that Jesus has risen from the dead. They don't see Christ at this point, but they see an angel that tells them that Christ has risen from the dead. I'm convinced Mary didn't see that because when she runs back, she doesn't have anything to say about an angel. She says, someone has stolen the body. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. At that point, Peter and John run to the tomb and they go in and what they see is evidence... Of Jesus' resurrection, but no miraculous signs. So they see the grave clothes. They see something very interesting. Not only the grave clothes, which doesn't make any sense, because if you're robbing the body, first of all, are you going to want to take grave clothes off that body and handle his, his bruised and bloodied form, that again would be so such a corruption to a, a typical Jew. You, you're not supposed to touch a dead body anyway. I wouldn't even begin to touch that thing. But why take the grave clothes off? So that doesn't make any sense. The other thing is that John noticed, and Peter did as well, uh, he saw the linen clothes lying there, and he mentions the what he calls a handkerchief or a napkin that was around Jesus' head. is some kind of a headpiece. Not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. And that doesn't make any sense. It's like fold it, Like, if you're trying to rob a grave and you're trying to get out of there, you'd, you'd think that you would take this kind of, of time, first of all, to unwrap the body, as disgusting as that would have been, but then to fold the headpiece, that doesn't make any sense. Now, Peter... Doesn't really figure that out. but John goes on and says, the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also he's talking about himself, and he saw and believed. So Peter and John saw evidence of Christ's resurrection, but they didn't see any miraculous signs. On the other hand, Mary now has Peter and John ran ahead of her. She follows John and Peter where to the grave again, to the to the tomb, and she stays after they left. So verse 11 says, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she, stood, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. So here Mary is, she is still brokenhearted because as far as she's concerned, not only has the Savior of the world been crucified, horrific death, but now someone is actually desecrating his body somewhere. And so she is just absolutely distraught because she has never gotten over what Jesus did for her. And She saw two angels in white sitting one at the head, the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. So she looked in the tomb. She sees two men in there and in her grief and just total despair, she doesn't put two and two together here at this point. She's not expecting Christ to rise from the dead. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. So, she, there's another person that all of a sudden is right there by her. She doesn't recognize him as Christ. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She's supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, here again is the loyalty and love of Mary Magdalene. And so, in her grief, she missed some signs, some clear signs of God's intervention in this situation. She didn't get the angels at the tomb. She didn't really understand who she's talking to there. She didn't even recognize Christ himself as he's questioning her. But something did change. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. When Jesus spoke Mary's name, Mary knew who she <laughs> he was listening to. And you can almost see her diving at the Lord's feet, so to speak. She just throws herself at him. Realizing who she's talking to now, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. And Mary came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, that he had spoken these things to her. So Mary recognized Jesus when he called her by name, and Jesus gave Mary a message for his disciples. And of course, Mary obeys and delivers that message. Luke tells us that when Mary Magdalene tells the disciples that she had seen the Lord, that, and I'm quoting now, their words, because Mary not only said that, but some other ladies saw Jesus a little bit later, their words seemed to them, to the disciples, like idle tales, and they did not believe them. And I can understand this. If you're Peter or John, you're thinking, why would Jesus appear to Mary Magdalene first? I mean, wouldn't why would he appear to us first? We're his disciples. Why wouldn't he, if he wasn't going to appear to a woman instead of us, why not marry Jesus' mother? But Mary Magdalene, the woman who had seven demons? Why would he why would he appear to her before he appears to us? Well, that leads to some very interesting conclusions. Let's go back and let's remember that Mary's life is a testimony to the reality of what Jesus can do and how He can change a person upon their salvation. And you may be a person who's listening today. Maybe you haven't even figured out yet why you why you left this radio program on. And yet, if you're honest with yourself, your life is a mess. No, maybe you don't have seven demons in you, but your life is a mess. And I'll just tell you, I can promise you on the authority of God's Word and even what God has done in, in my own life and the lives of other people that I know that Jesus Christ can change your life. He really can. He can change the whole course. And the great thing is God doesn't hold grudges. And Mary's love and loyalty for Christ shows something, a reality that she never got over what Jesus had done for her. And so she demonstrates a courageous loyalty to Christ that quite honestly excelled many of Jesus' closest followers. Think about it. Traveling with Christ, though she did not have the honor of being one of his 12 disciples, she's not worried about that. She's not like the disciples worrying about who's number one in the kingdom. She's not even fooling with that. She just wants to be around Jesus because she can't get over what he's done for her, delivering her. She identified with Christ at his crucifixion. She goes back to Christ's empty tomb to anoint his body. And so she has the honor of being the very first person to see the resurrected Christ. And Mark makes it clear that no one else saw Jesus before Mary Magdalene, which, by the way, would be very scandalous in that culture. In the first century uh, Jewish culture, a woman's testimony wasn't even considered something you could use in a court of law. So there were actually, not in the Scripture, but there were traditions that they had that said that you don't use a woman's testimony in the court of law, and yet here it is, God says, nope. I'm going to actually appear first to Mary Magdalene, a woman that had seven devils, and I'm going to appear second to a bunch of other ladies who actually were at the tomb, who cared enough to be around me. So God, what, is, what does this show us? That God's forgiveness is complete. He doesn't hold grudges. It doesn't matter what Mary did in her previous life. God had forgiven her. She was a new person. That it also shows that God is willing to bless all those that love him. It's not based upon whether you're male or female or how big your position is in the church. None of that has matters. Mary loved Christ, and she never got over what he had done for her. This also shows us that God rewards those who diligently seek him. Think of this. She's, despite her danger, she's at the foot of Jesus' cross. Despite her horror, she is still there when Jesus died. Despite her fatigue... After all that she'd seen that day, all the stress that she'd gone through, she's still there when Jesus was being buried. Despite her disgust at going to a dead body three days after Jesus had died, she's going there to anoint his body. And despite her even faithless anguish that she's going through, because she doesn't believe in the resurrection yet, she was still at the empty tomb weeping that someone may have tried to desecrate his body. But can I say this? Mary was not redeemable without the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. At 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4 to lays out the truth of the gospel. It says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul is telling us this is how you're saved. If you truly believe this, okay? And what he's saying, if unless you have believed in vain, there are a lot of people that claim to believe in Christ. You may have run into several. And the reality is they're not living it, they're not demonstrating a genuine faith. What is what is what do we have to believe? For I delivered to you first of all, Paul says, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Actually, it was prophesied in the Old Testament. That's why it says, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. The reality of the Gospel is believing that Jesus died for your sins, and if you will repent, like that thief on the cross did, if you will let God take the sins of your life away, as Mary was willing to do, God can and will forgive you and will make you a new creature in Christ. And so you can be born again today, just like Mary was. And I ask you three things in closing. Number one, has Christ delivered you? Can you look back to a time in your life when you understood, hey, I'm a sinner. I'm on my way to hell without Christ. I need to be born again. I need to be forgiven. Has Christ delivered you? Mary could say, oh, yes, he definitely has. Number two, what has he delivered you from? Does a specific sin come to mind, or? Have you been convinced he's delivered me from hell? And number three, if you have been delivered, have you gotten over what Jesus has done for you? I'll just tell you this, Mary never could. If you begin to see what Jesus has done for you, you will never be able to do enough for him. May God bless you. If Mary Magdalene's story has revealed your need for Christ's deliverance, forgiveness, and salvation, why not bow your head before God right now and ask Him to forgive you on the basis of Jesus Christ's death on the cross in your place? If Jesus can forgive and change Mary Magdalene, He can do the same for you. If you do come to Christ, we'd love to hear from you and to help you in any way that we can. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radioboldcom slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening.